0: the state structure that identifies one group of people that has the legal right to dispossess another group of people that only has the right to be dispossessed. What makes a settler, or what makes an indigenous person, is the legal imposition by the state that imposes a common identity on people that have in common, first and foremost, the right to be dispossessed
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. Israel's assault on Gaza has led to a huge upsurge in discussion of settler colonialism and the extent to which the term accurately describes the Zionist project in Palestine. My guest today, Sy Englet, is the author of Settler Colonialism, An Introduction, a new book from Pluto Press that provides an authoritative overview of the history of settler colonialism and resistance to it from the South African anti-apartheid struggle to campaigns against pipeline construction in North America. In the interview we discussed the history of settler colonialism from the British colonies in North America to the Portuguese Empire in Brazil and from apartheid South Africa to the French settler state in Algeria. We talked about the economic logics that made genocidal campaigns against indigenous societies possible in some contexts but not in others and about the surprisingly complex process of racialization that enabled the plunder of indigenous resources and labor. Finally, we discussed why Israel, contrary to the claims of liberal apologists, belongs firmly in the settler colonial tradition. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles, perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Imminent Critiques, The Frankfurt School Under Pressure by Martin Jay. Fifty years after the publication of The Dialectical Imagination, his pioneering history of the Frankfurt School, Martin Jay reflects on its legacy with a powerful new study. Focusing on the characteristic critical gesture that unites many Frankfurt School thinkers, that of imminent critique, Jay succeeds in opening up a fascinating perspective on a critical legacy that even a century on, remains open and still to come. Imminent Critiques, The Frankfurt School Under Pressure by Martin Jay is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Cy Engler is a lecturer at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He writes on settler colonialism, Zionism, labor movements, and antisemitism. He's a member of the editorial boards of Notes from Below and Historical Materialism. Settler colonialism, an introduction is his first book. So at the start of the book, you make the distinction between settler colonialism and so-called franchise colonialism. Can you explain the difference between the two and what would be some emblematic instances of those two forms of colonialism?
0: Yeah, totally. So I think maybe when we think about colonialism now, we would think of franchise colonialism. So we might think about The British in India, the Dutch in Indonesia, a form of colonial rule which is external, uh, largely dependent first on military power and then on a colonial administration, but which maintains an external rule over a colonized area.
1: And that colonial administration would include a very large numbers of indigenous people, right?
0: Well, yes. So that's, of course, one of the things that's important in, in, in that form of rule, which is that elements of the ruling classes uh, amongst the colonized are recruited into the maintaining of that rule. And in fact, not only, we can also think about the British in India, the kind of the large recruitment of uh, Indian soldiers into the colonial army, both at home and crucially abroad. 2.5 million Indians uh, are recruited into the British army during the Second World War, for example, right? So a a kind of a very large mobilization. Against that, there's another form of colonialism, which until really the kind of second half of the 19th century, end of the 19th century, is the main form of colonial rule. In fact, when Marx has debates on colonialism uh, in the late 19th century, he talks about settler colonialism as classical colonialism. And this is a form of colonialism, which is very similar to franchise colonialism in its goals, let's say, the control of territory, of natural resources, of labor, extraction of wealth towards the metropole, but maintains its power not only through military conquest, although through military conquest as well, but through the development of a metropolitan society or a society based on the metropole society in the colony itself. Uh, And so if we think of North America or, or Australia or Canada, Uh, South Africa, French Algeria, Palestine. These are all different places where external populations were brought in in order to maintain control over that territory. And that's important also, I think, because it generates very different social relations, right? It generates an ongoing colonial presence of a society that develops at the detriment and often through the mass murder of the indigenous populations in order to make that colonial society possible on that territory. And so that's the kind of the distinction, I think, between settler and, and franchise colonialism.
1: And that dynamic you describe also makes possible a secession, right? Yes, exactly. And so
0: that's one of the things where settler colonialism can also become masked in a way. So I think for people who would have studied post-colonialism or the history of colonialism at school of in, or in universities, it wouldn't be entirely out of the ordinary, to be told that the post-colonial period starts with American independence, for example, right? So that by the late 18th century, we enter into a period of post-colonialism because the American settlers established their independence uh, from the Americas. From the point of view of the indigenous populations of North America, the break between the settlers and the empire is actually the beginning of a period of heightened colonial expansion and dispossession. And so you get the kind of extremely uh, aggressive and murderous campaigns of uh, westward expansion by the settlers in the Americas. Uh, And in fact, that question is itself a major friction between the the, uh, American settler population and the British Empire is the speed uh, at which the settlers should be allowed to expand their land holdings and and push back the indigenous populations, dispossess them, uh, et cetera. And so you also get a very different reading of history, right? And and one that doesn't disappear if we think about the kind of energy politics in North America, but also in places like Australia, where the question of access to land, either for the extraction of oil, uh, gas, uh, other uh, mining resources... A lot of the fracking in North America is happening in indigenous lands or or lands that are still held by indigenous populations. The construction of pipelines, where we've seen very big confrontations, both in the United States and in Canada, with indigenous populations over the kind of continued conquest of land, effectively, and the imposition of state rule. You get a very different reading of what's happening once you recognize the category of settler colonialism and the fact that that process of dispossession is a, is an ongoing one in many places around the world. And of course, in Palestine right now, uh, in, in front of our eyes.
1: In the book, you pay tribute to the pathbreaking work of the late Australian historian Patrick Wolfe. But nonetheless, you take issue with the way in which he defines settler colonialism. And, and you argue that by limiting the concept to cases where the colonists' objective was the elimination of indigenous societies and peoples. That can lead to uh, an excessive focus on the Anglo settler societies such as Canada, the United States, Australia and, and New Zealand. Can you say something about where you differ with Wolf and, and why you think a more expansive definition of settler colonialism is more analytically useful and productive? I think...
0: There's maybe two things to say first, which is that Wolf intervenes at a really important moment in the late 1990s and early 2000s in bringing this question of settler colonialism back to the fore and becomes really the central kind of intellectual figure in this kind of re-emergence of studies of settler colonialism. That's not without problems for a number of reasons. One you've mentioned, and I'm coming back to in a second, I promise. Another one is that, of course, there's very long histories of analyses of settler colonialism. I mentioned, for example, that Marx has debates about the nature of Australian settler colonialism, for example, with Edward Gibbon, which is discussed in Capital and several kind of people have come back to. There are, perhaps more importantly, critiques and analyses and engagements with settler colonialism as long as settler colonialism exists through kind of indigenous resistance and attempts at dealing with kind of invasion control and the kind of ongoing struggle. So, Really, I think in many ways, modern or more recent engagements with settler colonialism emerge really in the kind of the 60s and 70s, largely in North America and in Palestine, amongst national liberation movements that are very much influenced by third worldism, Marxism, etc. For a number of reasons, that kind of goes into decline, as a lot of these movements are defeated or isolated temporarily and then wolf becomes very important in the kind of in the 1990s as you say wolf makes the distinction between settler colonialism and franchise colonialism not only on this question of the particular social relations that emerge out of the construction of a colonial society in the colonized territory but on this question where he says that franchise colonialism aims to exploit the indigenous populations and settler colonialism aims to eliminate them and so that elimination is the central question in settler-colonial regimes. And there's, of course, very good reason to say that. If you look at the kind of immense genocides that take place across the Americas, across uh, Oceania, uh, if you see what's happening now in Gaza, there's certainly something to be said of the fact that there is an eliminatory drive which emerges out of this attempt to build a society on a land that is already occupied by another people and therefore drives to break that other people's control over the land chase that people out of the land or eliminate them altogether. And so there's my my disagreement with him is certainly not to say that is not a central aspect of settler colonialism. My disagreement is twofold. One is to say that I think a lot of that is true for colonialism altogether, is that even when franchise colonial regimes don't attempt to develop new societies in the lands they conquer, they still have to break alternative forms of local, national, communal, you know, whatever it might be, forms of political and economic organization that are independent of the colonial rule. And that takes unbelievably violent forms. For example, you know, what is the appropriate way of describing the uh, colonially engineered and maintained famines in India, for example? I mean, sure, we can, yeah, it, I, I don't think definitional debates are irrelevant. But certainly elimination is a central part of that question and plays a massive role in maintaining colonial rule. The question of slavery and the enslavement of millions of Black Africans is again a place where both exploitation, elimination, franchise and settler colonialism all intermingle in a whole number of ways that I think two sharp kind of distinctions can fail to acknowledge and account for. The second part of my critique is I think there's Settler colonies that weren't dependent primarily on eliminating, physically eliminating indigenous populations, but on the country, on exploiting them. And so that if we place exploitation in the history of franchise colonialism, uh, we can't account for places like South Africa and, and Algeria, for example, that I mentioned. But even places like Mexico and Bolivia might already be more complicated, where elimination exploitation actually went very much hand in hand. And I think the reason that's important is not only to be analytically precise, but I think it's also important because of the very different history we start telling, I think, of these colonial regimes. So Wolf puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that settler colonialism is much more stable than franchise colonialism, and he points to the Anglo-settler colonies in North America and in Oceania to say, well, you know, they were able to survive, etc. If you start bringing exploitation back into the picture, you start accounting much more for effective movements for decolonization. The examples I mentioned, uh, Mahmoud Mamdani, who's a scholar of, amongst other things, of settler colonialism, has this famous sentence where he says, for students of colonialism, Africa is the continent of its failure and America the continent of its success. And I think that touches on the fact that colonial economies were dependent on the exploitation of indigenous labor was very important actually in the in the ability of indigenous movements to to overthrow those settler regimes. I also think it allows us to think more dynamically about how particular histories of colonization for a whole number of reasons led particular settler populations to be able to carry out kind of these gigantic genocidal campaigns of elimination whereas other settler populations weren't able. to to do so. And again, I think that allows us to think about different geographic, historical and political situations uh, more effectively.
1: When it comes to those different instances, when it comes to a case like India, where the emphasis is, although obviously, as you described, this tremendous violence and structural violence, the emphasis is more on exploitation and there isn't a huge settler population. That emphasis isn't for you to do with relative or lack of sort of ideological radicalism as compared with, say, North America, where there's a much more thoroughgoing genocidal project. But for you, that's more to do with material factors, changes in the European economies and social order that enables mass settlement in North America in a way that doesn't occur in certain other places.
0: Yes, I think that's right. Let me say first something about why I think that's right and then say I I, I do think ideology plays an important role. But I think it's striking that the most eliminatory settler regimes emerge out of Britain. And I think they emerge out of Britain because there's a particular history of early industrialization which generates massive surplus populations at home that the empire deals with by sending them out and so ridding themselves, quote unquote, of the kind of unwanted uh, elements at home and expanding colonial rule exploitation capture of land resources etc abroad which then again feeds into the kind of industrial machine
1: the availability
0: of settlers is a problem for other early empires so the dutch for example have very active policies of I can never say that word, probably, but misgeneration, the 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 mixing of populations.
1: Yeah, I can't say that either. <laughs>
0: right, uh, but so the mixing of populations because they don't have enough settlers to send, for example, to Indonesia and then to, to South Africa. So much so sure that when the British arrive in South Africa and 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 start taking it over, they are appalled by what they consider to be the uh, kind of unacceptable racial mores, quote unquote, of the Dutch settlers. In South Africa, uh, and so it, it generates very different also power balances and material relations of, of colonial rule in different kind of settings, which allow and and Wolf talks about this: the settlers in in North America sort of overwhelm indigenous populations in a way that's you know not possible in the same way in different times and in different places. That said, I do think ideology is important, and and there are real debates. So in French Algeria. There is a real debate in the early period of of conquest in the 19th century about whether or not to to launch campaigns of elimination in Algeria. I do think that the lack of access of mass kind of populations that could be sent to settle, and in fact, the French are going to be very dependent on non-French settler populations to control Algeria, plays a role in settling that ideological debate. But there is a real debate amongst settlers. In the history of Zionism, there is a massive question about will the Zionist project be based on the exploitation or on the elimination of the Palestinians throughout the kind of early 20th century, where other colonial projects are mobilized by the people involved in that debate to justify their positions. And so where some people looked very positively to French Algeria and would say that's the kind of model that we should recreate in Palestine... Others would point to South Africa and say, the problem with developing an economy dependent on the exploitation of the indigenous population is that population rebels, fights back, goes on strike, uh, destabilizes the national and economic imperatives of the settler population, and therefore should be avoided at all costs. And there's a whole number, again, of reasons why one side wins over the other. But these are real kind of live debates amongst colonial policymakers. That also, I think, have an ideological character. But like always, I think there are material reasons why one side is able to impose its ideological vision over the
1: other. Presumably in the case of Israel, one of the factors is is the history of uh, of the experience of, of anti-Semitism in Europe. Presumably that has some effect in tipping the scales towards the idea of, of a preponderance of Jewish people in Palestine, rather than, as you described, something closer to the, the model of, of French Algeria, where you have a, a population which is more dependent on the labour of the indigenous population.
0: It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure that that's right, I have to say. Of course, antisemitism is a central driver of the Zionist movement, right? So it's a, it's an extremely pessimistic reading of European antisemitism that says from the late 19th century, Europe will always be antisemitic. It will never be safe for Jews. And the only way for us to be safe is to do what everybody else is doing, which is to say, solve Europe's social problems abroad uh, through colonial expansion and they're very transparent about this. Herzl is very clear already in the Jewish state in 1896 that the resolution of it is, is colonial expansion. So, of course, the history of antisemitism is crucial, uh, and that's true for other settler regimes also, where kind of religious, political, social repression leads populations to embark on, on, on the colonial project. But that, in a sense, is perhaps the common ground amongst which the Zionists operate. The question then is, what does that state look like? And there, there's really a class question, which is that the kind of the bourgeois wings of the Zionist movement, which are in control of the project really up until the kind of late 1920s, let's say, are thinking primarily about how to organize a project that will be economically viable and integrated into Europe's kind of trading networks. And so they look at Algeria, for example, as as an example of a, a colony where indigenous populations can be exploited to generate cheap consumer goods that can be sold on the European market. Against that, you get a labor Zionist movement, and it's one of the reasons why the left-right divide in Israel can not quite map on expectations in Europe, where it's the labor movement that actually says if we are to build a movement where we will be not exploited like we were in Europe, except this time by Jewish bosses instead of by non-Jewish ones in Europe, we will have to lay control over the economy. And to do that, we will have to eliminate the the competition of cheaper Arab workers. And you see that play out in different ways. I mean, the struggles that lead to apartheid in South Africa are similarly fought on these kind of class lines where the bourgeois wings of of the settler movement are very happy with exploiting as much cheap black labor as possible whereas it's the white labor movement that fights for kind of imposed segregation in order to divide the kind of share of the pie that it can receive out of the colonial process.
1: In the case of Israel, I mean, it does seem a pretty extraordinary irony that it's labor Zionism, you know, a movement that whatever it actually was, you know, thought of itself as part of the socialist tradition, which eventually very much helps to lay the basis for the over-fascistic tendencies that we now see in Israeli politics, right?
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, they are the ones who start talking about transfer, which is a sort of polite term for, for expulsion, and for whom it will be central to their to their, political, to their political program very early on. The idea that the only way to build an effective, uh, an effective state is to do away with the indigenous population. And thus so on the basis of its defense of the worker. But of course, the worker is understood as being European, as being Jewish in this case. And I mean, you know, I draw in the book on the fact, again, that that's something that we see in different, you know, the famous strikes in South Africa where workers go on strike under the slogan, workers of the world unite for a white South Africa. It gives immediately a sense of who the workers of the world were. And in fact, I think as socialists, it should perhaps give us pause about the different strands in our own traditions. You know, there are many people who argued for the betterment of the lot of workers also in europe by expanding colonial exploitation in the global south etc so i do think there are you know there are different um trotsky has incredible writings really sort of vehemently denouncing the french settlers in algeria who call themselves socialists but continue to defend ongoing colonial rule for their kind of material benefit and you know i i think a lot of these kind of different traditions exist amongst our very broad kind of political DNA or whatever, which we wouldn't want to claim and we'd want to oppose, of course. But I think it's important to think of the fact that, you know, singing the Internationale and calling yourself a socialist is not is not enough. Because uh, as the history of Zionism shows, you can do that while expanding colonial rule and, and participating in ethnic cleansing. So, you know, I, I just think it calls on us to think critically about our own traditions as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, the labor movement in the in the metropoles hardly has a, a spotless reputation when it comes to their relationship to migrant labor. But in your view, though, is it is it the case that the incentives for workers in settler societies to make something of a common cause with employers to attack the rights of indigenous workers is that much greater, though?
0: So my sense is that it is. And I'm not sure it's necessarily with settler employers, but certainly with the settler state. And so I think that the kind of availability of access to land, to resources, to jobs, to the kind of infrastructure that is developed also through the relationship with imperialism more generally, etc., is dependent on the ongoing relationship and the ongoing stability of the settler state. And so I think what is striking is that even when there are extremely violent, and they can be extremely violent, I mean, the example I talked about in South Africa involves white bosses mobilizing extraordinary military violence, not only against black workers, but also against white workers in in different kind of situations, but that even in those situations, in the end, all social classes within the settler population are dependent on uh, the continuation of the settler state and of settler rule in order to continue to have access to those jobs, resources, etc. The NAGBA, to stick with the example of, of, uh, of Zionism, but the, the, the NAGBA leads to a massive redistribution of land, for example, much of which goes through the labor movement, through the kibbutzim, so through the kind of the collective farms that are supposed to be these kind of socialist paradises where European and American uh, lefties went to kind of work in the 60s and 70s. Their land holdings quadruple between 1947 and 1952, right? So the kind of the immediate aftermath of, of, um, uh, of dispossession, of ethnic cleansing leads to this kind of redistribution of resources, amongst the settler population. And that, I think, is... So it's not to say that they can't be... You know, we all know that there's racist kind of short-termist arguments in the labour movement, you know, British jobs for British workers, and uh, if we keep migrants out, we can protect our jobs, etc. But I think that's of a different order than the idea that actually the ongoing dispossession of this population gives us access to a much higher standard of living that we would have if we were simply you know workers in a in a capitalist society and i've i've sort of captured that by saying i think the class struggle in settler societies is fought not only over the redistribution of surplus value generated through the work of settler workers but also on the redistribution of colonial loot amongst settler populations and i think that generates a much stronger material pull towards this kind of uh, support for the for the settler state uh, than it does in 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 non-settler colonial societies
1: Just going back to the case of the British colonies in North America. So you write in the book that settler societies emerged, most strikingly in the colonies that would become the United States, which attempted to develop polities free from reliance on the indigenous populations. Their economies would be primarily dependent on settler smallholders and European bonded laborers on the one hand, and imported enslaved African populations on the other. Now, When it comes to the institution of European bonded labour, because I think that's probably the sector that is is least thought about and is is least in sort of popular consciousness. Can you talk a bit about that? You know, what was the institution of bonded labour exactly? And can you explain how the gradual improvement of conditions for those European workers ended up going hand in hand with the increasing repression of the indigenous peoples and, and the enslaved African population and the way in which racism served to build, you know, sort of cross-class alliance to to at least some extent within the white population to the detriment of pretty much everyone else?
0: Yeah, so I, I think that's really important also because I think it helps us make sense of how much we end up taking for granted things that are outcomes of particular political struggles, you know, that 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 are Uh, We might say they are socially constructed, but we end up thinking of them as materially real. And I think the kind of history of racism is a really powerful one in that sense, is that the early movement of labor to the Americas takes place through bonded, largely European labor. And so, in fact, it's almost, well, not almost, it is ahistorical to think of them as white workers. There is no such concept. There are European uh, workers who sign away their freedom for a number of years in order to have their uh, their crossing of the Atlantic paid for them, where they will be expected to work for the land uh, owners and the the early sort of proto-industrialists. It's, it would be as ahistorical to call them industrialists, but in the new world. The reality is that on those farms and on those plantations where indigenous workers were also enslaved and, and put to work, the question of the limited nature of bonded labor was almost irrelevant because of the huge quantity of people who would die because of the terrible conditions under which they would live and work uh, well before their term would come to an end. And so you don't really get a need for a racial differentiation between people whose liberty would be theoretically possible at the end of their bondage and those for who that would not be the case. What that means is that you get very different relations than the kind of the relations that we expect by the you know, uh, 18th century, effectively, where whiteness means a whole set of political and economic advantages that are denied to populations that are constructed as Black Africans and their descendants, most important of which is the owning of property and the possibility of being free, of not being owned or not being bonded. And so you get all sorts of different uh, social relations than those that we expect uh, throughout the kind of first century, century and a half of European colonization in uh, what is the east coast of North America. Uh, that includes, for example, black populations, so people who have come in bonded ways to North uh, America and who have survived and who have been in one way or another uh, freed, becoming landowners, owning Uh, bonded workers themselves in ways that seem almost unimaginable today and it is really the kind of twofold process one of the kind of the growing quality of life if I can call it that way uh, without that you know sounding like it's it, it was a good life but the quality of life good enough for bonded laborers to survive so to be able to come to the end of their term alongside growing political revolt. And that's, of course, connected to it, right? Is that the ability of people to not die immediately makes it possible for them to organize more stable and long-term networks of resistance and struggle. And a number of kind of key moments of political revolt in which white and black bonded laborers will revolt against the landowners will lead to the emergence of new rules, of new laws, of new imposed kind of material realities that will inscribe a kind of a difference, not a kind of difference, a difference, a fundamental difference between European and African populations, which is to say that to be free, to have access to property, to be able to own land, companies, etc., is to be white and to not have access to freedom, to be owned, to not be able to own property, is to be black and that's going to be enshrined throughout the seventeenth and eighteenth uh, century to a whole number of uh, legal uh, decisions uh, which create what we think of today uh, as white and black populations really representing this kind of these these different populations but that is the outcome of particular colonial processes of revolts of repression of those revolts and of the institution uh, of that difference uh, particularly in the early 18th century.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, an obvious example of the historical fluidity of racism would be the experience of the Irish, right, who suffered colonialism in, in Ireland itself and, and extraordinary racism. But you then describe how, over time, the Irish population in, in America becomes increasingly treated as if they are white.
0: Yeah, and there's a wonderful book, How the Irish Became White, by um, Noel Ignatiev which people should really read about this. And it's really interesting also to see the kind of the break that is operated in that process between the Irish in Ireland uh, and in Britain, who continue very much to be excluded from the kind of the the, the family of uh, rulers of the empire, and the Irish in the Americas, who are given the kind of the political bargain, if I can call it that way, of accepting the racial divisions in America in order to be integrated into into whiteness. And what Ignatieff shows is that there's a real political fight that is operated within that community over this question, which is that the the Irish Republican movement opposes uh, slavery, for example, in an extremely consistent way, which increasingly, as they develop, Irish organizations and, and community groups in the Americas will start to defend. And so he traces that as their kind of political entry into whiteness in the Americas. I think there are many cases like that, that the kind of the history of settler colonialism, I think, helps us think through. And in fact, we talked about Wolf. I think Patrick Wolf's best book is Traces of History, where he talks about how different racial regimes are constructed in different settler societies, representing different material relations. And I think that's a really important way for us to think about how regimes of difference are created, reproduced, institutionalized, et cetera, which also sees, for example, the movement of indigenous populations out of indigeneity, if, if I can say it that way. So Jewish populations in North Africa are made French. They are made non-indigenous by legal fiat in 1871 in the, in the Crémieux uh, Decree. In which all Jews in Algeria are made are made French. So from one day to the next, they are extracted out of the indigenous population and they are made French. And that links to the the, the issue we were discussing earlier of the lack of available uh, settler populations in France, for example, leading to particular colonial setups and and, and limitations that didn't exist in the same way on, on on North American populations. The particular differences that the the settler colonial regime imposed on both Black and Indigenous population, again, speaks on the kind of material relations at play in the construction of identities and of different racial methods of control. So Black populations who were to work, who are considered to be property, and whose continued exploitation would lead to greater accumulation of wealth were trapped in an inescapable blackness in these racist laws that we were just talking about. So the famous one-drop rule captured much later an idea that was already present, which was that any mixture with black populations could only lead to black children. So whether a black person had a child with a white person, an indigenous person, their child could only be considered as black. And what that meant was their child could be enslaved could not own property, and could be put to work. Whereas for indigenous population, indigenous blood was constructed in the kind of the so-called race sciences of the 19th century as being dilutable. What that meant was that after a certain amount of mixing of indigenous blood, all of this in quotation marks for people who are listening to us, with non-indigenous blood, with white blood, would make those populations white. And what that meant was that they could be extracted out of the collective land ownership that indigenous populations had against the American state. And so that it was a kind of a racial strategy of trying to thin out the indigenous population through misgeniation. But what that points to, I think, is that forms of difference that we tend to assume to simply be material realities, just facts of life, are entirely constructed by different uh, regimes of power, of exploitation, of extraction, et cetera, and mirror those, those particular social relations.
1: Another case that you write about a lot in the book is Portuguese Brazil, which was extraordinarily dependent on slave labor. And, and of course, slavery wasn't even abolished in Brazil until 1888. And you have that great quote from Patrick Wolfe where he writes that instead of talking of slaves in the sugar industry as distinct from, say, slaves in the rice industry or slaves in the cotton industry, we might do better, at least where Portugal is concerned, to talk of sugar, rice or cotton in the slave industry. Can you talk about Brazil and and how racialization played out in, in quite a different way there?
0: Yes, I mean, again, this is a really good example to think about what do particular forms of social organization tell us about the material relations that they represent, right? And so, If in North America, the question was one drop rule, anybody that could be constructed as black was to be constructed as black so that they could be turned into an enslaved population, also spoke about the particular balance of forces between the white populations and the enslaved populations, which is to say that white people majorly outnumbered black populations. And so that to grow the number of black populations, particularly once the slave trade was ended, uh, or at least officially ended, that it pushed for as effective a reproduction of the enslaved population as possible. And the analysis on which I'm massively indebted and dependent on on Wolf's explanation in that book, *Traces of History*, is that in Brazil, particularly in the northern parts of Brazil, where there's a a, a huge enslaved population, the relationship is very different. Is that because that Uh, Brazil was so close to Africa, and because Portuguese uh, slavers were so important to the merchant networks of Portugal, it encouraged a massive continuous importation of enslaved populations to Brazil. And that leads to a whole number of different realities than that of uh, slavery in North America. And in fact, we should know more about it because it's also the largest market of enslaved africans in in the americas is actually in brazil uh, and not as we might imagine it in in north america and what that leads to is a number of things one is that it leads to a much larger amount of both deaths and murders of slaves uh, and that can seem sort of contradictory but the reason being that the kind of the, the flow of newly enslaved people was so continuous that if slaves survived it was cheaper to uh, free them and replace them than to continue to work them until they would die, but that of course the vast majority could be worked until death because they could simply be replaced, and so that you get this kind of I think I call it a grisly arithmetic in the in in the book of of how slavery is 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 organized quite quite differently. What it also leads to is a very different geography, let's say, of race in Brazil, in which. In order to divide this population, this majority population of African descent in Brazil, uh, the slavery population starts generating a kind of massive amount of racial differentiation between lots of different groups of people that they consider to be sort of fundamentally different. So whereas in the United States, you would have white and black, and that was the difference, in Brazil, you get hundreds, literally hundreds of different social groups that are considered on a kind of a sliding scale between white and black. And, and the way Wolf explains that is to say that that form of social differentiation becomes necessary in order to maintain control through division in areas that are made up of majority uh, populations that are a descendant of, of, of enslaved Africans. And and this is a, a kind of a reality that you find in other societies where the, the black populations become majorities. And so if you look at the Caribbean, for example, you equally get this kind of division between you know the kind of the black population and the mixed populations, for example, that are extracted with kind of different names given at different times to be a sort of a middle layer between the white settlers and the and the majority enslaved black populations. You see similar processes take place in the Spanish economies uh, where a minority of white settlers dependent on the exploitation of a majority indigenous population. And then you get this kind of differentiation between mestizos and indios, right? So you get the kind of the the, the real, quote-unquote, indigenous populations and the the mixed populations that are to play the role of sort of overseer or smallholders or et cetera, that are, that are sort of a line of defense inside of the colonial economy. And so that the different... And and again, by the way, to, to make my very first point again, I think this points again to the importance of making sense of different paths, economic and political paths and, and, and social relations in different of colonies, because we're not only talking about elimination. And so we're not only talking about the same forms of social control and difference that are imposed in lots of different colonial settings but that actually these different relations point or generate different forms of social control and, and social organization. It's maybe important to say that it's not because the, the colonial states impose those differences, that those differences become material fact and they are challenged and rejected in all sorts of ways in many of the uprisings in which these kind of divisions, for example, between One group of descendants of enslaved Africans or another might be differentiated by the Portuguese colonial state, but that doesn't mean that when they rise up, they are unable to reject that difference, for example, and build alliances in order to to overthrow the colonial rulers or indeed to leave. And you have many kind of societies built by uh, enslaved populations that freed themselves where indigenous and black populations lived in kind of free states for example, in the Amazon or, or in the, the kind of hillier parts of Jamaica, etc., where you have these important maroon populations. So it's not to say that because the settler state generates these differences that they are unbreakable, but they, of course, become important social realities that that these movements have to engage with.
1: I mean, on that point about differentiation and, and going back to the case of Algeria, so you describe how the Jewish population was, was made sort of by fear French, and at the end of the Algerian War, most of the Jewish population ended up moving to to France, despite having, you know, in many cases, been there for a very, very long time. Do you place, obviously, you know, the, the primary responsibility for that is the is the French authorities, but do you place some responsibility on some of the decisions of the FLN and the, and the broader resistance to, to the French, which perhaps might have explored ways to maintain greater links between the Muslim, Arab and Berber population and, and the Algerian Jews.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And, and many of the kind of more progressive and, and left-wing of the Algerian national movement made that critique while, while these things were ongoing. So I think it was, it was very much a debate early on. I think there's two things to say. One is I think it's really important to say that by the War of Independence, Algerian Jews have been made French for nearly a century. So from 18, 1870, I said 71 earlier, I think it's 70. By uh, the early 1950s, and certainly by independence, that's 80 and 90 years of, of having been made French. There's a short period actually where they lose their French nationality, the Algerian Jews lose their French nationality because the Vichy regime takes it away from them. And there's a brief moment actually where the Gaulle hesitates to give it back to them. Interesting moment in history because he worries that he will lose the support of the settlers in North Africa, if he who, who were rabid anti-Semites uh, and in fact the backbone of modern French anti-Semitism from the late 19th century onwards, that he would lose their support if he was to give the the, the Algerian Jews their French nationality back. But apart from that 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 short moment during the Second World War, Algerian Jews have been French for a hundred, nearly a hundred years. What that means is that their material circumstances are almost, certainly in the cities, because it's different in the south of the country, and and there are exceptions to this, but in the north of the country and in the cities, their life is uh, largely separated. They have access to French education. They have access to uh, uh, jobs in the French administration, crucially, so they have a a better livelihood. They have access to housing in French neighbourhoods. And even if not, the Jewish quarter becomes often much more prosperous than it than it had been uh, in the past because of the connection with France. And so, in many ways, you get a real differentiation of the experience of French colonialism uh, from those populations than from the, the the majority Muslim population, and that is sort of shown in lots of ways that are very striking. In a lot of the memoirs of the Algerian Jews who ended up in France, almost all of them, but, you know, people like Benjamin Stora, you get Daniel Guérin, who wrote a book called uh, Semite, which was translated into English by Verso, where people talk about their families who supported independence, but who nonetheless by the kind of early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, know that that independence will not be for them. It's a really striking kind of experience. And I think it's really important to say that this is primarily an outcome of the colonial policies that generated those differences. That said, I do think that the FLN and I should say the majority factions inside of the FLN, because you have people inside of the FLN that defend very different visions of what the future Algeria should look like. And of course, there's also an other independence organization that has been written out of history by, by the FLN, which is called the MNA, the national Algerian movement
1: who, who they were very much at war,
0: with, very right? much at war and carried out. Yes. And carried out unspeakable massacres of their members, et cetera. I mean, you know, there's, you know, I, I think we forget, and this is important to think about the present. I think we forget about how incredibly violent, uh, the process of decolonization were and were because of how incredibly violent colonialism is. And it's something I try to say in the book continuously is that this entire institution can only exist through unspeakable, continuous forms of violence that maintain it. And again, I think that that's something that with some historical distance of of many of the colonial empires of the 20th century, we we tend to, or or that, that ended in the 20th century, we tend to forget. But the FLN's vision was of a future Algeria, which would be Arab and Muslim. And on the one hand, that is a response, again, to the structures that they were facing, in which European power, French power, was constructed uh, through that differentiation. So people would either be European or Muslim. And that, w- that those were legal categories, which, by the way, is important to understand contemporary French politics, because when the French go on about their secularization in 1905, secularism never applied in Algeria, despite the fact that Algeria was considered part of France, because the legal category through which the indigenous population was controlled was a legal country that understood them as Muslim, first and foremost. And so they were French Muslim against the Europeans, as the settlers were understood, because they weren't only French anyway. But the reason that's important is that, therefore, in response to that, the FLN says our Algeria will be Arab, it won't be European, and it will be Muslim. We are Muslim, and this is the basis on which we are controlled by France and exploited, etc. The problem with that is that much of Algeria is is, is... not arab and muslim it might be one of those or it might be neither of those and that has continued to be a massive problem for the construction of algerian political life since it's difficult because it depends where you put the limits but nearly 80 percent of the algerian population is considered to be in one way or another berber for example so that already complicates this category of Arab. And we'd have to have a whole podcast to talk about how many of those categories were also imposed by the French and that the divisions between those populations was never as clear as they became in in modern times, etc. But nonetheless, what you get is a a state in which uh, populations that understand themselves as either not Arab or not Muslim end up in a real kind of contradictory position. And so the FLN, for example, had a position of saying, And it made calls to their Jewish brothers and sisters, et cetera, of joining the struggle for independence. And of course, many did, particularly through their connections in the Communist Party or different forms of of Marxism. But that often remained a sort of an abstract appeal, which wasn't necessarily clear on how it would deal with the real material differences that existed between those populations, nor of how, what the place would be. And so, for example, uh, Benjamin Stora, who's become much more right wing now than he was in he he was a Trotskist in the seventies and stuff so and now writes reports for Emmanuel Macron in which he tells him not to apologize for colonialism in Algeria. So he's come a very long way. But once upon a time he was a a progressive and very important figure. He describes his father who supported independence and the FLN, who was very close to some of the leading figures of the FLN in the east of the country, who was a personal friend of the man who would become the first president of independent Algeria, meeting with officials of the FLN a few months before independence and saying to them, But what, what will be our place as Jews? What, how do we fit in this Muslim and Arab state that you are to build? And basically never getting a clear response. And Stora is quite good at explaining that by saying, on the one hand, it was such a minority question for a movement that was dealing with masses of urban and, and peasant poor who had lived in unspeakable conditions for the last decade of independent struggle to say nothing of the 130 years of colonialism, that it was sort of understandable, perhaps, but also that it was a real political failure because Stora's father, who is this close to the leadership of the FN, says there won't be a, a place for us in in this state. And so we're going to France. And so he, as somebody who supports them to the very last moment decides, decides that, they, that they can't stay. And so I think it also points to the fact of how important and, and fundamental these kind of colonial differences can become. And perhaps also something to remember. I think sometimes, you know, there's a difference between acknowledging that things are socially constructed and then thinking that because they're socially constructed, they're somehow less real. Is that they become real in lots of real, everyday, kind of material, fundamental ways that continue to have really long kind of consequences, including for the Jews of Algeria, who have overwhelmingly left and, and cut their, their, their connections with the country. And for those who haven't maintained them at very difficult, in very difficult situations, uh, you know, in which return, et cetera, is cetera, is not obvious.
1: On a different theme of the book, you write that the interconnection between settler power and the imposition of gendered power structures was a key aspect in the reshaping of social relations across the settler colonial world. Can you talk about some examples that highlight the way in which the settler colonial project typically served to bolster patriarchy or or enforce new versions of of those sort of, as you describe, gendered power structures?
0: Well, so to answer that question, I think I maybe have to, and it's funny because I was thinking about that example when I was saying it out loud Mm -hmm. earlier, I have to nuance perhaps a difference that I emphasized at the beginning between franchise colonialism and settler colonialism, which is that settler colonialism does generate forms of collaborating indigenous power amongst the indigenous populations in in different ways, but it generates them nonetheless. And so that throughout the history of settler colonialism, you find forms of colonially imposed indigenous self-rule So, for example, the rule over the reservations, whether in North America or in South Africa, for example, are imposed by colonial regimes. The Spanish develop uh, alliances with minor kind of lords and aristocrats in Latin America that are turned into the kind of allies of the colonial regime in order to maintain power. Again, if we want to think about Palestine today, we might think of the Palestinian Authority and you know the kind of on the one hand the destruction of Palestinian society and on the other hand the kind of maintaining of a particular form of indigenous power that serves to maintain stability uh, within the kind of populations that have been displaced, uh, are ruled over, etc. And I, I have to take that uh, long way round to say that what's striking and the point I make in the book is that those forms of self uh, of imposed self rule repeatedly destroy alternative forms of gender relations so that in places where women played an important political and or economic role, those roles are systematically destroyed by the colonial rulers and the colonially compliant forms of indigenous rule that are imposed by them are always patriarchal. So the example, I think I give the the example of the Zulu chiefs that are the institution of chiefdom that is created by the British in South Africa is one in which the chief can only be a man forms of alternative religious practice in Latin America that the Spaniards give or, or that the Spaniards fight as a kind of a central form of alternative indigenous social and political organization is one that is often centered around a female figures, that are religious uh, leaders and the maintainers of, of indigenous tradition against the kind of imposition by colonial rule. And so the Spanish will particularly identify women in those positions as a kind of a danger to Spanish power and, and, and to be eliminated. The Iroquois Confederation in the area that is today the kind of eastern border between Canada and the United States, women played an absolutely central role uh, in political decision making and although the american state inspired itself for its own constitution on the kind of founding text of the iroquois confederation it nonetheless moved to impose forms of indigenous self-rule in the reservations uh, that again identified the populations that could hold those positions uh, as being men and so you get this kind of this continuous imposition we were talking about Algeria, it's of course very striking that the integration of Algerian women into what was considered to be the proper European way of life was centered on the unveiling of Algerian women uh, in ways that are strikingly similar to uh, the French state's obsession today with unveiling Muslim women inside of, of its own borders. But so, You get colonial officials describing the kind of importance of, quote unquote, civilizing indigenous women in order to be able to break the back of social organization of Algerian society, also by imposing different kind of forms of of family organization. I have to say that here is one of those places where I think that sometimes too sharp distinction between a settler and a franchise colonial world can also hide much more important uh, continuities. Lord Cromer, who played such an important role both in Egypt and in India for the British Empire, was famous both for fighting the suffragettes in Britain while at the same time supporting the so-called liberation of Egyptian women. But what that liberation meant was breaking forms of collective community organisation in which social reproductive labour, although often gendered, was collectivized and therefore was, of course, also an important kind of pillar of community life and therefore of opposition to colonial rule, that the breaking of those forms of uh, social organization were necessary in order to impose the nuclear family and the place of women at home in that nuclear family uh, and therefore the privatization of social reproductive labor as well into the home, uh, but that that was understood as playing a kind of a central role in the breaking of the communal forms of, of organization of, uh, of Egyptians in order to, to bring the British Empire into the home, in a sense, by reorganizing. And so there's very long kind of continuities uh, in, in that process, I think, in, in which patriarchal power, the imposition of patriarchal power, which, by the way, also just as the imposition of particular forms of class rule, gets a buy-in of certain sections of, of the indigenous population uh, that can then become a chief, for example, or the or the immediate coterie around it and therefore benefit from the process. That that imposition of patriarchal rule is also key in the breaking up of existing forms of, of communal organization and solidarity in which women particularly are, are identified as being a threat uh, to colonial power because of their role in communal uh, organization, in religious organization, in particular positions of power that they might have held in different society. I mean, obviously, we're talking about you know a history that spans 500 years of the globe. So there's lots of different forms that that this takes in different places at different times. But nonetheless, it's a striking aspect, and you know, I don't think that should be surprising, in as much as patriarchal power has gone hand in hand with the development of class societies across the board and throughout time in transforming, you know, women in in producing the process of passing property from one generation to the next by controlling women and the childbearing kind of process etc you know so there's 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 real kind of and there's there's striking things uh, in that right so for example that in the early history of settlement in north america you see our european women and often irish women actually running away to join indigenous populations and one of the reasons they do so and there's kind of different ones that people write about but is that the the gender relations how much freer, that the possibility of changing partner uh, is, is much freer, uh, that the possibility of owning, uh, or well, perhaps not owning, but of having access to communally held resources is much freer than it is inside of the European settlements, for example.
1: Is it your sense that when it comes to resistance to the imposition of those patriarchal norms, to what extent was that taken on the basis of it being a fight over the rights of women versus it being understood that those norms are being imposed, not just in the name of patriarchy, but in the name of of the capitalist settler colonial project more broadly?
0: I mean, I I think that's too difficult to answer in, in the abstract or in the general, in the sense that I think that plays itself out very differently in different situations, also in the way in which, of course, some of those imposed forms of colonial rule on the indigenous population becomes normalized and integrated and defended as a defense of of tradition, right? And so that the attempt at, that later on, the attempt at changing gender relations in indigenous forms of self-rule is then ironically understood as an imposition or an, an import of kind of modern liberalism and a challenge of kind of indigenous rule. So that can also lead to a kind of a strengthening of uh, reactionary forms of organization, of patriarchal forms of organization amongst the indigenous population, who argue that the kind of uh, transformation of those patriarchal norms is actually a colonial attempt at at challenging tradition, hiding the fact that they, the, the, this is a tradition of you know hundred two hundred years established by by colonial powers, for example. So 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 that's also a possibility. I don't think there's a kind of an automatic link between anti-colonial resistance and and the breaking of patriarchy and those things are fought over continuously all the time just as they are you know anywhere right like just as we talked about ongoing racism in in labor movements and the fact that you have to fight for anti-racist positions the same is true for for opposition to sexism or or or, you know homophobia or, or whatever it might be those are the outcomes of political struggle but it does very much cut both ways and so you know, listeners might be familiar, sorry, maybe I'm talking too much about Algeria, but it's a case I know well, of, of the, the movie, um, The Battle of Algiers, in which it shows something that really happened, which was that Algerian women mobilized colonial assumptions about themselves in order to participate in the armed struggle, for example. So that women that were veiled were considered to be backwards and therefore not able to be political actors and they would use their kind of hikes, they call these long, white, uh, full-body kind of veils, to hide weapons in them uh, and pass checkpoints because they were considered to not be able to be political actors uh, and therefore not suspicious. In the other direction, women who were unveiled, who looked European, who were dressed uh, in in the kind of latest European fashion, were equally considered to have been won over to the colonial project and therefore not to be a political threat to France. And so similarly, women dress that way in order to be able to pass weapons, messages, etc., through checkpoints. So you also get a mobilization by, by, by women of those kind of colonial, patriarchal tropes. But then you get the same process after independence by the time that the military coup happens in, in Algeria and, and Houari uh, Medien takes power the, the family code is imposed, which very much kind of pushes women back in the house on the basis of stopping the kind of influence of socialist and Western ideas in Algeria. But that actually reproduced very much kind of colonial logics in Algeria. So you can see, I think, this kind of interplay in which, you know, there's lots of reasons why a new or existing power structures amongst or, or within indigenous societies replay patriarchal power structures for, for their own kind of gain in, in lots of ways. So I think, you you know, the, the kind of two are possible and they are the outcome of struggle. And, and they depend kind of whether the, the more progressive or more conservative forces emerge as victorious in that process.
1: A very different gender dynamic that you describe is one within the uh, settler populations. And you describe how in certain cases, rights for women were actually won in places like Australia earlier than they were in somewhere like Britain. But that was not really because of political radicalism, but because white women in Australia were prepared to sort of imbricate themselves deeply in the settler-colonial project in order to reap certain rewards.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that you also get a process of the kind of increasing of the white vote, for example, so like also in a place like New Zealand, uh, by including white women into the... The, the body politic in a much more direct way. And so turning them into, for example, participants in, in elections. And so you get this kind of interesting celebration of the progressive gendered politics, you know, that kind of uh, uh, create political possibilities for, for women. But of course, it's for for settler women uh, to to participate. And so in a sense that, again, has very strong parallels with this idea of like particular indigenous populations being pulled out of the kind of the body of, indigeneity in order to strengthen and grow the number of settlers, so could you have women being enfranchised politically in those settler colonies, for example, to augment the vote. Uh, of course, similar situation in, in the history of Zionism, in which, you know, very famously women can participate in the military, play a very active role in the, in the kibbutz uh, movement, where much of social reproductive labor is redistributed. But again, with this idea of winning a sort of a demographic uh, conflict with the indigenous population. That's sort of a, an all hands on deck sort of sort of approach, which I should say also is hyper contradictory because it's, it's on the one hand true. And so that you see a kind of a greater integration in those societies of settler women in the political life of those states that on the one hand can seem sort of more progressive than in the metropole or certainly developing earlier than in the metropole. But that often also comes with a hyper defense of extremely severe defenses of, of gender norms. And so that, you know, one of the the same logic that leads to these women being integrated into the body politic in order to facilitate or in order to grow, to strengthen the balance of power between settler and indigenous population also leads to considering women primarily as creators of, of demographic growth. Right. And so... Very much the idea that women have to give birth and, 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 and reproduce the population as much as possible, and that in you know in Israeli politics is is continuous throughout the hundred years of Zionism is this idea that you know there's a demographic war as well, and so that 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 women very much have to participate in it, and you know many Israeli feminists continue to write about the fact that for all its claims, the kind of enlightened liberalism in a in a sea of uh, of backwardness as Zionism likes to to represent itself. The primary imperative is to have children and serve as many as possible in order to win the demographic war, so it is a contradictory one, but it's a it's a it's a useful example I think of where those gender relations play themselves out in in ways that can be contradictory, perhaps just like I was saying about how patriarchy can be strengthened or weakened in the struggle against colonialism, so it can be strengthened or weakened in different ways in the expansion of the colonial rule within the settler population itself, I should say, that it, it doesn't spill over.
1: The term settler colonialism is, is obviously being discussed more in, and has greater resonance than perhaps it ever has done because of the situation in Gaza and all, all the, you know, discussion around the nature of Israel that is that is occurring because of it. And, and we're seeing the term used in very mainstream venues often to disparage the idea, of, you know, particularly regarding Israel. And I wonder if you could say something on some of the Claims that are made to the effect that Israel does not count as a case of settler colonialism. And there are various arguments that are made to make that case. For instance, it's claimed that in the late 1940s, the effort to create Israel was in armed defiance of the British Empire you know, there was an insurgency against the British uh, led by the Jewish militias. Also that there was no sort of straightforward metropole in the Israeli case as there was regarding British or French or Spanish imperialism or Italian, say. And furthermore, that Jews are, so the argument goes, themselves indigenous to Palestine, and therefore they can't be considered settler colonizers. Could you comment on those various arguments and and why you find them unconvincing?
0: Yes, I think this is really important. I mean, The first thing to say is that very late, so up until the 1960s, the Zionist movement and then the Israeli state have no qualms with their own colonial nature. So that's one of the things that's fascinating to read early Zionist sources, is that they discuss themselves as being colonial and settling and settlers, etc., very openly, largely because they're Europeans from the late 19th century. And in the early stages of Zionism, they're bourgeois Europeans of the late 19th century, and they see absolutely no problem with colonialism. So Herzl discusses Zionism as a colonial process in the Jewish state. I mean, the the kind of the founding text of organized Zionism, there are other earlier forms of the kind of founding text of organized Zionism. The Zionist organization, which he then sets up to make colonialism possible, sets up a Jewish colonial bank, called the Jewish colonial bank, to finance settlement in Palestine, the Moshavim, which are the, the first collective farms. Moshava in Hebrew means colony. So they're literally called colonies. I have um, a special edition of a Israeli newspaper that was printed in French, so targeted at populations in French called L'Information, which did a special issue in 1958, 1958 so 10 years after the Nagba to celebrate the a decade of uh, good relations between France and Israel, in which it, by the way, makes the connection between uh, Israel's struggle against the Palestinians and, and France's struggle against the Algerians, but in which articles talk about the advance of colonization, but they are talking about the development of collective farms inside of Israel. So they're talking within their own borders. They are talking about the advancements of colonization. So, All of that to say, I mean, there's many other examples, the the debates that I mentioned between bourgeois and labor Zionists about what other colonial formation to emulate or not. Jabotinsky has a famous uh, essay, The Iron Wall, in which he talks about how indigenous people never accept colonial rule and always fight back and therefore have to be crushed militarily, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, The early Zionists are extremely clear about the fact that they're a colonial movement and that to be successful they have to learn from the kind of the the wide array of colonial experiences amongst amongst other states and 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 they debate and discuss this very actively so so that's one thing to say which i you know i think it's a bit like now right there's all these debates about whether or not israel is committing genocide and then when you turn on any israeli television channel everybody's very happy to talk about eliminating Gaza altogether, kicking everybody out. I mean, you know, there's just kind of dealing with human animals. Everybody should die. I mean, there's no lack of kind of damning evidence, let's say. And it's a bit the same, I think, in in this debate in many ways, except it's decades long in the kind of accumulated evidence. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think, even amongst people who think about Zionism as colonialism, there is this sense that it's fundamentally different for a number of reasons. I actually think that in many ways, Zionism is extremely similar to different forms of colonial rule. So I'll take those you mentioned. So first of all, there's the idea that because Jews are oppressed in Europe, and you know certainly that's, that's true, that their escape of Europe gives the Zionist movement a different kind of political character. I actually think this is absolutely, and I've already mentioned it earlier in this discussion, that I think it's central to the history of settler colonialism. That it's often religious and political oppressed minorities who flee Europe, and in the process of fleeing Europe, they established the expanded colonial presence and become Europeans by leaving it, if that makes sense, because they become the vanguard of colonial expansion. The pilgrims, I think I talk about in the book, are the sort of the obvious example, a religious minority, the Puritans oppressed and repressed in in Britain. They flee for the Netherlands, where they can freely publish for a while uh, after the Dutch Revolution. But as the Netherlands and Britain uh, start working more closely together, the English crown demands that Britain repress them in the Netherlands as well, which they do. And so half of them decides that they will go and build a better life in the Americas, you get uh, political repression that leads to settlement. Uh, the, the crushing of the, the Paris Commune led to the deportation of uh, French revolutionaries to Algeria. Uh, the Torpedo Martyrs that are famous as the kind of early examples of British trade unionism, that is repressed. Uh, one of the forms of repression is that its leaders are sent to Australia to go in and expand settlement there. I mean, you get lots of forms of political, religious, uh, in fact somebody was telling me that there's uh, examples of Algerians who were repressed after rebelling in Algeria who had been sent by the French state to participate in settlement in other islands in the Pacific for France for example and so you you get a actually a, a long continuity of this process that it is by leaving and by expanding colonial rule uh, that that you can become the Irish that we discussed before. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's sort of lots of examples of that, which also links, I think, to this question of the colonial metropole. The Zionists are hyper clear very, very early on. And again, this is present from Herzl onwards, that the only way the state will happen uh, is by being supported by a European power. In fact, it, the same passage that is always quoted to talk about Herzl talks about Uh, colonizing efforts in both Argentina and Palestine. And he says the mistake uh, of those colonizing efforts has been slow infiltration. And slow infiltration can only lead to failure because the indigenous population at some point rebels because they can understand what's happening. We need the support of European powers to make this happen. And so the kind of the active recruitment of European powers to the colonial project and the kind of the double deal of Zionism, which is to say we can be uh, you know, what what stores the the first British military officer in Palestine called a, a little loyal Jewish ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. You know, we can be that for you at the key crossroads of the world economy. Again, a key aspect of settler colonialism, controlling key points in the world economy. Think about the Falklands. Think about the Cape you know, kind of key places of the world economy that can be controlled by by a settler population. And in exchange, and then appealing to the kind of anti-Semitism of European ruling classes, it's a way to deal with the kind of the Jewish populations that you don't want at home. Uh, the Balfour Declaration is, is super important in that because it's both the moment where Zionism gets a metropole, there is a colonial state which decides to support Zionism, and that's the, the moment a key historical moment in making Zionism possible is the protection and the support of of an imperial power, uh, both economically and militarily. But also Balfour is a famous anti-Semite. Balfour writes the 1905 Aliens Act, in which Jewish migration from Eastern Europe is very, very aggressively limited to enter Britain. And and as much of the Lloyd George uh, government is very happy at the idea that there is actually an alternative of what to do with the Jewish populations than have them in England, but to actually have them expand colonial rule abroad. Two others I wanted to come back to. So you talked about confrontation, the fact that there's at some point there is a military confrontation between the British and the Zionist militias, and that military confrontation is about the speed at which they can claim independence. And again, that's not something special. Uh, we talked already about the fact that the American Revolution from the perspective of settler colonialism is a revolution for greater, indigenous, uh, for greater settler independence to dispossess indigenous populations. You know, uh, the Rhodesian independence from the British Empire is similarly the settlers demanding greater liberty to dispossess and, and mete out violence against indigenous populations without control of the empire. When the goal is moving towards negotiations with the FLN, the Algerian generals try to take power. And break away from France. I mean, you know, many of the South American revolutions, well, many, the South American revolutions maintain the rule of the white settler populations at the same time that they break away from the Spanish crown. You know, that clash between the metropole and the settler movement actually makes Zionism much more a kind of a classic case of settler politics than a a different one. I think the most important one is potentially this question about indigeneity. here, hear that many people disagree and this is an ongoing debate, etc. But I think there is a question about what do we mean by what is an indigenous person and what is a settler? And do we mean this as sort of intrinsic realities that it's about who was here first, uh, right? So who was here when conquest started or are they political categories? Are they imposed identities, political identities? And to me, the second one is really important. And this, because, of course, on the one hand, there is simply a reality that at some point there is conquest. But that's obviously limited in time. And then there's a question of, like, well, how long does it last and whatever. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's already a contradiction because we've talked about populations that can be extracted out by colonial fiat, out of the indigenous population and integrated into the settler population. I think all of that points to the fact that we're talking about a political reality which is a state structure that identifies one group of people that has the legal right to dispossess another group of people that only has the right to be dispossessed. People like Brenna Banda and uh, Robert Nichols have written wonderful books on this question, on the question of property and settler colonialism. And that the kind of the central question is that, is what makes a settler or what makes an indigenous person in a settler colonial reality Is the legal imposition by the state of a right to dispossess or a right to be dispossessed. And I think that's important because, one, it allows us to make sense of populations that can sort of move. So, on the one hand, you could just say, well, Zionists came to Palestine in the late 19th and early 20th century, and they claimed continuity of historic relations with people 2,000 years before. And that's ridiculous because it's a modern European colonial project and it understood itself as such. That's true. But it's not the only thing that happens. What also happens is that there are Jews in Palestine who increasingly, by the late 1920s, early 1930s, are integrated into the Zionist and then Israeli body politic. So are they indigenous or are they settlers? And I think you don't really get out of that if you don't think about what are the kind of material realities that are imposed, that at some point they are integrated legally into a group of people that are given the right to dispossess another group of people and to participate in the uh, distribution of colonial loot. I think that also helps us to think about decolonization, by the way, is that to end a situation where people are, are settlers and indigenous people is about ending a structural reality where accumulation of one people's labor, land, resources, et cetera, is made possible by another people. And that both of those people are defined as being, as having the particular characteristics that make them being part of one group or another. And so that it's about ending a kind of a structural reality, which both allows us, I think, to think about decolonization as possible, and also to complicate some other, you know, we might ask the question about how much that's happened in South Africa where the difference between white and black populations is materially speaking bigger today than it was in 94. Right. So it complicated in lots of ways, but I think in, in important ways politically to think about what does real kind of decolonization look like and think about the possibility of fundamental kind of structural, structural changes and, and, and transformations because that also works in other ways, right? It's like, what does this category of indigenous actually mean? For populations that, you know, thought of themselves as families or clans or nations or tribes or any kind of existing political realities that existed prior to the imposition of suddenly a common colonial ruler that imposes, often through conquest and military rule and and a certain period of time, a common identity on people that have in common First and foremost, the right to be dispossessed by the settler population. And that makes all other forms of identification secondary at best, if of any sort of relevance to the colonial power, at least, at all. I remember being in a in a seminar where somebody pointed out that very big family in Palestine is called Masri, which means Egyptian uh, in Arabic. And saying you know it might complicate this idea of indigeneity as being a fundamental sort of attachment to a particular place. You know, people came from different places at different times, but in a sense it's irrelevant because it's about a political reality of one group being dispossessed by another, and that being structurally, legally, materially, kind of allowed, reproduced, recreated, etc. And that it's about, I think, you know, breaking and destroying that. By the way, also to make other identities that are fundamentally important for people themselves are realisable. Uh, you know, that it's by destroying those kind of forms of control and power that, that it, it becomes possible for people to exist in, in ways that are, you know, vital and, and important to themselves.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, £5 pound patrons get access to PTO Extra, bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash other to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.